Welcome to The Swinging Christies, the podcast about Agatha Christie in the swinging 60s. I'm Dr. Mark Aldridge. I'm an Agatha Christie historian and writer. And I'm Grey Robert Brown. I'm a writer and a Christie groupie, which I should have said for the rock and roll episode, actually. But here we are in a different episode. I'm saying that instead. Well, we do we do follow Agatha Christie around <laughs> because we've just had a week in uh, Torquay and Exeter doing Agatha we Christie did. things. Yes, I and went you, to Wallingford. You visited her her amazing new kind of no, it's not a bust. I was going to say bust. It's a full statue, a full statue on a bench. In one of, yeah, and it was one of those things that you go because it's obviously really busy. And you're like, I'd, I'd quite like a photo with it, but it's really, really busy. You sort of like hang around for a little bit. And I was I was starting to wander <laughs> off. And somebody ran after me and said, no, we need a photo of you with it. Because whatever, they needed a photo of loads of people. It's like, oh, if I must. Oh, go on Oh, then. go on. Yeah, then. funnily enough, I can't, I don't know if I told you, but my friend Georgia, who lives in Wallingford, hi Georgia, if you're listening, sent me a shot yesterday of her on the bench with Agatha with a beer. And I did have to tell her that I'm afraid Agatha won't be partaking in that because famously she did not drink. But uh, if, if unfortunately, Georgia and I are vegan, otherwise I would have recommended that she uh, she took her some cream. But um, yeah. Anyway, so equality or more accurately, inequality, class, tax. This episode is money, money, money. <laughs> Are you stinking rich? So it's in the title of Sandbrook, Never Had It So Good. There's this Harold Macmillan quote, Prime Minister Macmillan quote from the end of the 50s, looking forward to the next decade. And he says, most of our people have never had it so good. It's interesting because that's the bit that's always quoted. And what's not always quoted is the rest of the quote, which is him saying, is it too good to be true? Or perhaps I should say, uh, is it too good to last? Oh, wow. And I think yes. the answer to both of those questions is is yes, as we'll see, because um, this is very much yeah, a two-sided kind of conversation. But I just thought it was important to establish straight off the bat that there is this sense that this is a kind of boom time. As we'll talk about in this episode, we've got production on the increase. We've got increased wealth. We've got youth with disposable income. We've got consumerism. A lot to cover off. But let's bring it back down to the dame. The reason we're both here, Dr. Mark Aldridge. I'm not calling you the dame. (laughs) That's all right. I'll I'll take that. Whatever they want to give me, I'll take. The the great dame, Agatha Christie. Not the great Dane, Agatha Christie. She's not a dog. What's happening for her in regards to money at this time? The big thing that happened that's significant for the period we're looking at is that 1955, so a few years before, Mm -hmm. um, sees the formation of Agatha Christie Limited. Mm -hmm. And I am not going to spend the rest of this episode going over the business details and how, uh, you know, limited companies work. But the most (laughs) pertinent thing is, essentially for taxation reasons in particular, it is much more expedient to have a limited company that is taking ownership of these works than than be working as a sole author. And Mm. I think that it's easy to think, well, didn't you have enough money to have to set up a limited company? We're talking well over 90% taxation Mm. at this point. Um, And huge problems in America, getting her money from America, that took a long time, many, many years for that to resolve in the 1940s. So Mm. this was sort of the outcome of that. And she always asked, is it ethical? That is something she asked. I'm sure you quote in in Poirot or maybe your forthcoming Marple book. It's she. That's her pretty much her first response to yes. the proposition of ACL, right? Yeah, which be- is which was really nice to read. Actually, it was kind of heartening. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it, especially because she's she's quite open about saying she doesn't particularly understand it. Um, mm. And why would she? It's not not her expertise at all. What's interesting is that. Agatha Christie Limited solves many, many problems in terms of the way that tax works. It makes it much more straightforward in many ways. But of course, it also makes a few things more complicated. Mm. But also, the whole idea of what Agatha Christie saw as excessive taxation, from the way that she spoke about it, she seemed to see it as excessive for her, even though it's much more straightforward than it had been before. Mm. Um, And even though there are things like a salary from the company, which makes things completely different to you relying on these little waves of money. Yeah, yeah. So so the deal was that she was now essentially a paid employee by 
this company and that's partly why or maybe entirely why we get pretty much a book a year from this point yeah so this 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 seemed to be part of the deals that that she would be pretty much writing a book a year that was the expectation Mm. um generally that's the way that it was supposed to work yeah so in 1960 we get that kind of hodgepodge collection of short stories Christmas adventure pudding. of the Christmas pudding. The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding and a Selection of Entrees is a collection of early short stories, including the titular The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding, or The Theft of the Royal Ruby, and The Mystery of the Spanish Chest, both of which were rewritten for publication in 1960. Because there's not quite a full novel to... Yeah, to... she's working on, on stage work and various other things at the yeah, time. Yeah. The point is, it's supposed to really simplify it, but she's still talking about tax all the way through the 60s. Yeah, she she makes a few kind of sardonic uh, and witty asides, doesn't she? Throughout her work, the one that always sticks in my mind is, is when Joyce, the girl in Halloween Party... Halloween Party is a Poirot mystery novel in which a girl is drowned while apple bobbing from 1969. Joyce says to Mrs. Oliver, who, as we've mentioned on the podcast before, is kind of this Agatha cipher. And she says, you make a lot of money from your books, don't you? Uh, And Mrs. Oliver replies, in a way, her thoughts flying to the inland revenue. (laughs) Um, Thoughts flying. I love that. It's like, and again, it's not, it's, I think she's being quite jovial about it, really. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a preoccupation. To sing about Michael in Endless Night. Endless Night is a standalone psychological thriller in which young couple Michael and Ellie are menaced by unusual happenings from 1967. Who says that in a way that he's lucky that he's not rich because it means he doesn't have to pay so much oh, tax. Yes, she does. And I remember <laughs> doesn't I think all about Agatha pulls that out as like a as like a kind of they say that's one of the few moments when Michael doesn't sound believable to them because it sounds very much like the author talking. I think there's maybe a there may be right in that actually because yeah. Uh, yeah that does sound more like the perspective of a of an upper middle class woman than it does a, a working class guy yeah almost like he's talking about the principle of it because he says um, any money I make goes into my pocket and nobody can take it away from me you think well that's fine but if you're making like five pounds a week rather than say fifty thousand pounds a week I, you know to pick crazy figures out of the air I think most people would rather have a really high income and pay a lot of tax and still have a pretty good income yeah. than earn almost nothing. Yeah, at least I'm not paying any tax. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. And actually, Endless Night is a significant one, isn't it? And I think we're going to come back to that towards the end of the episode. And I think you've said to me before that there is this sense that Christie just was always generally kind of quite careful with money. Like I said, I said upper middle class or maybe middle class. She's not. I think there's a cultural perception that she's from a very, very like from she's from like aristocracy mm. and that's not true is it no no so lots of this comes from her childhood where her father came from a lot of wealth but lost a lot of that money it's a very long story but the basics of it is that they were superficially quite comfortable but also had to be really careful yeah i always think of the the, the time that they had to go and live in france <laughs> you know you got to go and live in france because as as, as strange as this seems now, it was cheaper to let out their house in, in England to then go and live in France. So that instilled in a, a suspicion about money, I think. Mm. Um, but also valuing it, knowing yes. the value of it. I think there's a there's a lovely bit in towards the start of Laura Thompson, Laura Thompson's biography of Christie, where she she talks about how as a girl she she wanted to be the Lady Agatha one day. You know, she oh. she knew the importance of being comfortable and and I think she always wanted to provide for, you know, Rosalind, for for Max, yeah. for for Matthew. Yeah. I think it's very difficult for us because the the class system that she was born into and society that she was born into just is so distant from society mm. as it is now. So all in all, I think one thing is irrefutable and that's that the money is definitely in the forefront of Christie's mind a lot of the time and a lot of the time when she's writing yeah. in one way or another. Well, this also included gifting of her books various mm. times. to, uh, And most famously, the Mousetrap play that she gifted to, to Matthew, her, her grandson. Um, and these were all kind gestures, but it's also because if you want to give somebody some sort of financial gift, it was an expedient way to do it, to give them ownership rather than funnel the earnings through you and then give it to them because obviously she was a very high rate taxpayer. Mm -hmm. So um, this all makes sense that she's thinking about money all the time. I'm always struck by the story that when 
when she and Max Mallow and her second husband went to America in 1966, mm. she's 76. She is a has been certified as the best-selling author in the world, mm. novelist in the world at this point, and they fly economy. <laughs> and and I just think that that says so much about yeah this this valuing money in in particular ways. Yes. Yeah. In terms of Agatha Christie's earnings in the 60s, one of the biggest sources of income, or most significant perhaps, is not so much her novels and her stage plays, which still do phenomenally well. Her books generally sell more each year than the previous year. Mm. But um, was a deal with MGM, the movie studio, that, that finally was signed in 1960. <laughs> they first had conversations in the 1930s, uh, and this is how long it took for the deal to go through. It was, took about two or three years for, the, for the, this actual deal to go through. Um, and again, I won't go into the business details, but it basically gave them a really broad selection of Agatha Christie titles that they could adapt. And slightly unwittingly, Agatha Christie also had given permission for them to be quite flexible with the way that mm. they adapt. And she didn't seem to realise this. Indeed, the company didn't seem to realise it. But this is but one of the... boy, would they realise it later boy, on. Boy, will they realise it later <laughs> on. But, but this is one of the things that, at the time, Agatha said, oh, I, I held out until I was 70, but I fell in the end. You know, this idea that she was fending off the big film studios for a long time, which she yeah. was. But of course... She has to fall in the end because now it's a limited company, right? So so it's not yeah. just her. You have to do things to, for the good of the company. And they yeah. were very respectful of her. They had proper conversations. She could have vetoed it within the company. They absolutely made that clear. Yeah. But now it's it's different. It's not just about her own individual income. Yeah. There are other people who are relying on that that company. Yeah. It's also the way the world works by this point, isn't it? I mean, I guess when we, when she's first talking about the film deals, potential film deals in the 30s, visual media is still relatively in its infancy, whereas by this point it is essential that an institution like Christie is becoming has a presence on the big screen. Yeah. Um but yeah, I, I I remember so you pulled out this this great quote in your book Agatha Christie on screen um she she literally says i i really feel sick and ashamed of what i did when i joined up with mgm it was my fault one does things for money and one is wrong to do so since one parts with one's literary integrity very sad isn't it's it it's very sad i think she was always much more down on the well adaptations generally than she needed be and i don't think they damaged her or her reputation or as she says her integrity as much as she thinks they did. But Rosalind was pretty galled by the whole thing as well, she, right? Her daughter. Yeah, she was. And and the thing is, 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 so we think of these four Miss Marple films that start in 1961 and run until 64. And the first one, Murder, She Said. Murder, She Said is a film adaptation of 450 from Paddington from 1961. Agatha Christie was fairly sort of cool about it. Like she, she didn't love it. She actually thought that the cinematography wasn't great and she thought that it was paced not very well. And she said that Margaret Rutherford came quite a good performance but obviously wasn't like Miss Marple mm. and so but she seemed fairly relaxed about it a bit disappointed by the time we get to the last of the four films Murder Ahoy is an original Miss Marple film starring Margaret Rutherford from 1964 they are inventing new stories uh, Miss Marple is now uh, a, a, a granddaughter or something of a retired of an ad, big admiral and something anyway an excuse is given for her to be dressed up and uh, like an admiral yes um and they, and they, you know on a on a navy ship that's for you know all sorts of hijinks ensue um i believe i believe the the phrase you're you're grasping for is only agatha christie can mix murder with mirth with such hilarious abandon oh, gosh i mean it's just not it's such, true it's a fundamental it? misunderstanding it's of what she's doing absolutely. and yet it's also weirdly kind of accurate but not in a way that they mean it to be in that i keep saying that she's funny she is funny but not in this kind of broad, bawdy, end of the pier way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. There isn't a great deal of wit in these films. And there's a yeah. lot of like physical comedy. And um, she's really upset by this point. So mm. so when she gets a script for Murder Ahoy, you know, she calls it a farrago of nonsense and sort of sends it back. And there's all sorts of disputes about it because basically they're ready to film it and they've sent it to her to say, 
as a courtesy, really, to say yeah, this is what yeah. our next next one is. And this is the one where it's it's not based on no. any... There's no... Not even a passing reference, really, to any kind of uh, source material. Um, although I did notice, I, I think I said to you, when I was rereading um, At Bertram's Hotel, At Bertram's Hotel is a Miss Marple novel set in a London hotel, which is not quite what it seems from 1965, which would have been written... Around the time, maybe shortly after she'd seen the script for Murder of Hoy, and we know that, although we know she didn't see it, right? She didn't go and see the film, but she read the script. And there is reference, passing reference in a roundabout way to Marple's great uncle Thomas, the retired admiral. And I wondered if there's maybe, wow. yeah, this it's almost like there's something that's lodged in her head there. And she would, I'm sure if she were listening to this, she'd be horrified that I'm implying that she took inspiration from the abomination that is Murder Ahoy. But even like the fact that we see um, Marple going to the army army and navy stores, it's like, I don't know, you've got the words Admiral Navy floating all around this yes. Miss Marple novel that's written just at this time. I'd never spotted that. Yeah. Well, and I know we talked before about how there is this feeling in the early 60s that you know, you get Miracrack 62, you then get Caribbean Mysteries 64 and Bertram 65 and three Marple novels within the space of four novels in terms of publication order is something we never see before or since in terms of Christie's canon, right? Mm. And it is almost as if she's trying to steer the ship again, not to use another naval metaphor, but yeah, to try and kind of... Uh, reassert some authority over Marple, and and of course she uh, does. She insist on this caption at the front of the Marble novels. Yeah, so there's there's two things. That first of all, in Murder Ahoy, after a lot of back and forth, Agatha and Rosalind draft a little caption to go up at the beginning of that film to say that this uh, Miss oh, Marple yes. is based on uh, the screenwriter's interpretation of of Miss Marple. Um, but in the books for Caribbean Mystery and at Bertram's Hotel, there is also under the title, on the title page, an extra little uh, mention of the fact that this book features Miss Marple, the original Agatha Christie creation. Hmm. Uh, but it's, it's funny that you, you just said that Murder Ahoy is an abomination, but also <laughs> you enjoyed the MGM movie. I was just about to say I've I've thrown out a lot of a lot of uh, scathing words there, such as uh, end of the pier and and all the rest of it. But I do think they're fun films. I I, d- I don't think many people would disagree with that. They That's might disagree with the fun. veracity, but I think it's it's undeniable that they become less faithful to the source material as they go on, and therefore. I don't know. Sometimes you just sit there kind of thinking, you know, there's so much in the source material that would have been a more preferable choice. But certainly Murder, She Said and Murder at the Gallop, I think, are are pretty strong. I think a big part of the problem is that they pretend to be faithful. And I think if you took that completely out of the equation and said... Uh, Agatha Christie's Miss Marple in exciting new adventures for the screen, right? That's mm. brilliant. But in all of the trailers, a lot of the publicity, it's like everyone knows Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. Here's the chance to see you know, this, something, that thing about no one mixes murder with mirth, you know, yes, uh, like, yeah. like Agatha Christie. It's just, that's not just a misunderstanding, but it's a misselling in a really weird way because you think, if you've read Agatha Christie, that isn't going to make much sense to you anyway. Yeah, and to some extent, that's what bothers Christie and ACL generally about the situation, right? Is the sense that people then might come to the books like the argument they have about the the, the sort of film tie-in cover for is it is that Murder at the Gallop? Yes, yeah. Because the the concern is that people will come to the books expecting what they've seen on screen, and by extension, the kind of tone that they've seen on screen, like rather than yeah rather than the original material which is not yeah. the same and so yeah uh, well yeah and it's i think it go- it comes down to whether or not you're willing to accept that everything has to be faithful or if something can be a reinterpretation i think both you and i i mean your so much of your career is built on adaptation studies i don't need to explain to you the fact that these things are it still exist like the source material still exists and the new interpretation exists and if you don't like it you don't have to watch it basically. But I do think there is a feeling for me that Margaret Rutherford's Marple is a reinvented Marple for a new 
age, which is obviously very potent for what we're talking about here. And there's a you make the point in your forthcoming Marple book that she, you've got a nice little quote in about how she rings to, up to accept the part on Christmas Day 1960. Yeah. And it is like we're heralding a new decade with a transformative a kind of watershed moment, actually. And they were really successful, these films. They're made by MGM, this American studio, but they're European division. And mm. uh, they are designed for international viewing. And so they're going to reach audiences that perhaps Agatha Christie novels haven't really touched. You know, Even yeah. though she was clearly a huge seller internationally, there are people uh, who, who will go and see these films and did go and see these films who might never read in Agatha Christie. Um, and whether you could say, oh, well, that means they have a completely different idea of what she did or not, it's still bringing the basics of what she does to, to a lot more people. Yeah, completely. And this sort of thing about the the slight timelessness of it and, and the fact that it's 1960s was also not necessarily swinging particularly these Marple films were picked up at the time there's this review uh in films and filming uh which i dug out for, for for the Marple book that says about the genre is out of tune with the times of course so that's interesting that even the genre of this sort of traditional murder mystery might have felt out of time which go a long way towards explaining its popularity. So people like it being a bit out of time. Part of the conceit is to pretend that the adventures of Miss Marple are happening now, while the pleasure is rooted in that aura of the middle distance. It is all very neat and soothing, and so long as they keep it like this, Miss Marple must stay. I made the point recently, and I think it's worth reiterating, that Christie isn't known for, or or necessarily recognised for being a polemicist or a satirist or someone that's particularly plugged into current affairs, what's going on in the world in that present moment. And obviously we know as diehard Christy, Christy groupies that that is, uh, is false. And in particular, I think the speed at which she reflects back society to itself is often quite surprising. Yeah. And, the, and the relevant example for, for this episode, I think, is the Great Train Robbery oh, of yeah. 63. Um, because at Bertram's Hotel is, to my mind, essentially... Uh, well, not to my mind. I think it's it's very explicit. Is a is a satire come retelling of that case that was still actually dominating the headlines. There's a really beautifully written sequence in Bertram's where she describes uh, a train robbery, which is not explicitly the train robbery, but is so clearly based yeah. on eyewitness accounts. I mean, I've got it here, so. Uh, the Irish male rushed through the night or, more correctly, through the darkness of the early morning hours. She goes on, then with some suddenness, the pace slackened as the brakes came on, the wheels screamed as they gripped the metals slower, slower. It's this incredible descriptive writing mm. that I don't think Christy often gets credit for, but she goes on, uh, six men who had just climbed up to the up the embankment boarded the train through a door left open for them in the last coach. Um, six passengers from different coaches met them. She talks about their balaclava helmets and their coshes in hand. I mean, it's so clearly closely based on what's just happened. And she even finds a way after kind of taking the reader on that journey back into the news headlines. She then finds a way to pull it back to the plot of the story she's telling, which is uh, as the uh, getaway car goes off, it makes this almighty screech. And, and one traveller says to another, is that a jet plane? And the other says, racing car, I should say. And we know that there's this shady yeah. racing driver kind of on the periphery of the plot by this point. So it's it's so clearly uh, inspired by... Um, and I think, you know me, I'm a Bertram's apologist. Apolog um, no, supporter, <laughs> let's say. Advocate. I've, yeah, it's a brilliant book. I, really I think, book. I mean, I think all these 60s books are brilliant. That's kind of why I'm here. But I, uh, I do think that it's a brilliant book. And I think similarly to the way that um, the partners in crime stories, some of them are sort of underestimated because they're closely satirising and inspired by detectives and detective writers that have been lost to the, to the sands of time. 
similarly, although we we still talk to some extent about the Grange train robbery, I don't think we know the ins and outs popular popularly. No, really romanticised really quickly. Yeah. Actually, this idea yeah. of it being some great big movie-style adventure, even yes. though we know that there are actually real human costs to yeah. this. To yeah, this. definitely. But I think this collective amnesia of the of the details of the story it is really evident in the in the climax of Bertram's Hotel because readers often have a pop at the climax of this book I think it's fair to say for being a bit camp and silly I mean we literally have a potential culprit saying the words catch me if you can (laughs) and then exiting the room via the window Window. Um, but what people are forgetting is in 64 and earlier in 65 just before Bertram's is coming out and whilst Christie's writing it there have been not one but two death-defying stunt-style escapes from prison of Great Train Robbery Colcrits. And she's very... It's clear by setting up the Irish train section earlier in the book, she's clearly inviting us to make that link, I think. You know, she'll fall. She's climbing up the drainpipe. But why up? She's going to the roof. It's her only chance and she knows it. Good God, look at her. Climbs like a cat. I mean, if this isn't a prisoner's escape from from a high security wing, then I, I don't know what is. The risks she's taking, Miss Marple murmured. It's really striking. And it intersects with something that I know you wanted to touch on a bit more about how we see in these especially slightly more thrillery 60s titles. Christy talks about organised crime. Yes, yes, she does. And this is something that I don't think people associate very readily. I, you know, Agatha Christie with very readily because mm. it's sort of it's you know, closed circle mysteries and whodunits. But actually, we get this a few times in the 60s. So mm. most most significantly um, here in the Birch's Hotel, uh, but also in By the Pricking of My Thumbs. By the Pricking of My Thumbs sees Tommy and Tuppence return to investigate a mystery at a nursing home from 1968. Mm. Um, and even if you want to go back to Pale Horse in a way... that. The Pale Horse is a standalone novel that explores mysterious goings-on and unexplained deaths at a countryside inn from 1961. There are loads of different yes. ways that these are all great. These aren't just people who have one specific motivation and will affect one person. You know, they're murdering a great aunt or something for, for their wealth. This is actual organised criminality. Yeah. So we're getting much, much more... And I think that's a much more modern concept, or at least it's a concept that... Agatha Christie feels is more pertinent because we will come back to um, uh, several of the interviews she did this this decade because this mm. is a recurring theme. But her feeling that that crime was on the rise generally, and I think that she's always slightly looking for not necessarily a scapegoat, but some sort of rationale for where this is coming from. That it seems to be yeah. a shift in society, including this this organisation. Because in in pricking my thumbs, I think it's it's almost just sort of like a backstory, isn't it? It's like yes. an explanation for for why somebody might have been behind yeah. everything. It's extra colour, and it kind of and maybe is is used kind of in terms of obfuscation. I think, yeah. yeah. Um, or to explain a red herring. And it's a um, quick shortcut, isn't it? You know immediately what you mean. It's talking criminal gangs and stuff. Yeah, and then the yeah. Knows. I mean, arguably, yeah, definitely. I think what's interesting and why this is particularly pertinent this episode is because when we talk about organised crime and sort of crime rings and mafiosa style things, 90% of the time we're talking the motivation is money. Mm. And certainly that's obviously what the great train robbery came down to there's there's a mention you mentioned the pale horse there and there's a there's an explanation of the culprit's desire for money and it's actually quite startlingly mundane uh lejeune the um detective he just says he loved money and he wanted money but not for spending that bungalow uh, in which he lived was sparsely furnished and all with stuff that he'd bought cheap at sales. He didn't like spending money. He just wanted to have it. Mm. You know, this sense of kind of, it, and it's actually, there's a, I think there's a puncturing that Christie's doing there. It's, it's almost like um, she's pointing out the fallacy of, of killing for money and how wrong it is and how unnecessary it is. Certainly we're left in, uh, in under no illusions that, that Scotland Yard um, in Bertram's hotel are, uh, under the impression that that this kind of crime is massively on the rise, they have this kind of solemn conclave where they where they um, talk about the uh, who might be the mastermind behind it all. And of course, Bertram Hotel has a great twist to that effect. Um, but I think we'll we'll go into that in a later episode. 
So as society is moving out of the shadow of the Second World War, we've mm. also got some increased wealth, which we've touched on, which means that the the fabric of society, at least superficially, seems to be changing in yeah. lots of ways. N- never more is this pertinent than the mirror crack from side to side. The mirror cracks from side to side is a Miss Marple novel about a poisoning at a film star's house. It's from 1962. Where the kind of revolution in the Marple canon, which is, is I think revolution isn't too grand a word either because it is given a lot of page time, isn't it? And it is it is uh, extremely significant. And that is that St Mary Mead, the beautiful little country village in which Marple lives, is getting uh, or has got a whole new housing estate titled the development. The development. It's all, yeah, with the capital letters. Capital D. <laughs> that, that's it, yeah. the development. But I, I, I'm from a, a small town in Devon, and when we got a new housing estate, it was always the new estate. Yes. That, I'm yeah. sure that's that's common. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I Similarly, I where I grew up, they were talking about developing the land kind of between the nearest town and where I was for basically all of my childhood and fighting railing against it and then i think by the time i went to uni it it happened which sounds a little bit like me going to uni (laughs) was what it's like i wasn't there to protect the township anymore and therefore it happened um but no but uh it's fascinating isn't it because we've we've come to know st mary mead we've seen several books and stories set there by this point across christie's works and here the the face of it has completely changed and it's an incredibly descriptive quite lengthy opening isn't it yeah it's interesting because you might think that miss marple would be dismissive of the changing face i guess of saint mary mead but she's actually quite receptive to it that doesn't mean that she embraces it she doesn't seem to think that it is inherently something she's excited or thrilled about but she says quite simply along the lines of well people have to live somewhere and these houses are well made and and what are you going to do and she also points out that the type of people living in these houses are actually the same sort of people that you encounter anywhere. They're not these big, yes. scary, different people who've been you know, dropped into the edge of St. Mary Mead. Mm. Yeah, completely. It's interesting, isn't it? Because she even explicitly talks about using the knowledge that she can garner from being exposed to more walks of life for basically her, you know, quote-unquote superpower, which is to be able to understand human nature and therefore solve mysteries um, by meeting lots of different people by understanding people and what makes them tick um she makes that point quite clearly in um Miracrat and again in Caribbean mystery I think but yeah we, we she deliberately kind of goes out exploring around the development industry which is this great we we see it as a great act of kind of transgression because she is supposed to be pretty much housebound she's being kept by various kind of helpers yes. um you know not tending to her garden and not not straying from the from the beaten track and yet she does and actually the mo- and the moment when she kind of goes into crosses this this kind of great frontier into this brave new world is really emphasized it talks about kind of crossing a stream and then it turns into tarmac and there it is it's the development it's all very it's actually, it's very literary, it's very sophisticatedly written, I think, and it's very striking. And we do meet people from the development, mm. including Cherry, who's now helping Miss Marple in her house. And uh, the interesting thing about Cherry and her husband is that initially uh, their house, which Miss Marple's very positive about in the development, mm. they end up by the end of the novel actually turning their back on it and coming to live with Miss Marple in the older bit of St. Mary Mead. And they even yeah. say, oh, gadgets are lovely, but actually, do we need all of these gadgets? And, you know, higher purchase, which Agatha Christie's obsessed with around this time, <laughs> this idea that you would sort of pay in instalments for these nice, shiny new things, that maybe that's not always such a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because having spent a lot of the... um a lot of the book kind of being quite fair to the development it's and the people that live there. It's interesting that characters explicitly choose the old world, i.e. living above 
Miss Marple's garage or whatever it is above the stables um, instead of their shiny new house. But she is careful to say, oh, no, we do like the gadgets, but we can have the gadgets anywhere, as you said. So it is like we'll bring it. We'll bring a touch of modernity with us. But maybe there's stuff about the the kind of old way of doing things that still holds holds firm and holds good, which is a, a plea for a plea for nuance, a, a rejection of a bit of a binary there in, in some way, I think. I find it really interesting that I'm, I think I'm right in saying one of, the, one of the original potential titles for the Mirror Act from side to side was Development Murder. Is that right? Yeah, well, think, that's that's the title under which some of the notes are made in the notebooks. I don't know. If is that, that from John? Have, John? Yeah. Brown. Yeah. Um, but I find. Sure. But I well, so I remember reading that initially and thinking that's a terrible title. <laughs> but actually, it's kind of clever if you think about development. I think we're we're supposed to be thinking about the word development because development is both developing into a new society and develop you know changing and altering and building and adding but it's also a plot development it's the next development is murder it's kind of like calling it revelation murder or operation murder which is a kind of pulpy 60s title which wouldn't be out of place in contemporary novels let's let's say for for argument's sake that development murder was ever seriously considered as a proper title then we'd probably have to assume that that was either a red herring or that it was supposed to refer to the other meaning of development because of course the murder in yeah, mirror yeah. crack does not happen on the development or to, to no i mean oh, I, it does well it does happen to a resident of the it, development yes it does and i think that the point the reason i think that that she was putting that under the development murder uh, was because she's really thinking about that's got to be important to the novel like that yes. she wants that to be integral and and, and it is yeah it's not window dressing is it it's, yeah. it's not just a, a, a an aside it's yeah. actually essential to, to the way that the fabric of think Mary Mead and its surroundings have changed. Definitely. But it's also, I do, I think sometimes people cite the development in The Mirror Cracked as evidence of Christie's slightly kind of uh, snobbish or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, kind of tendencies but i think it's important to note that if we if we if we follow the argument that to some extent murder mysteries are always going to be kind of morality plays on some level because they're always going to be victims and villains and and that's quite clear kind of uh moralistically then it's significant that the murderer is not someone from the development. It's not like the development is a hotbed of vice or criminality. And actually, it's the people, they're very kind of new world people, but it's the people in the big house on the hill that are wrecking the havoc in the story and creating, yeah, creating vice and, and high as a kite and, and yeah. all the rest of it. Um, and not the ordinary people that are just trying to live their lives in their new builds. And this thing about the way that people live changing, it pops up a couple of, of times in other novels as well. And yeah. not always just as a big plot point, but that there's mentions in By the Pricking My Thumbs about the way that you might have expected families to live together or at least to support each other to live in their own homes for mm. longer rather than putting people in nursing homes, for example. Um, and even the whole sort of premise of Endless Night drawing on this principle of basically building a nice new shiny house on top of where there used to be another house yeah. or that, that you're reworking the landscape in some way to make it more modern and fit to sort of more modern perspectives. So this is a society that's continuing to change and that she's reflecting all the way through the 1960s. Is is the Endless Night point significant? Because I think I'm right in saying that at Ashfield, her child, the childhood home of Agatha Christie, was torn down and replaced with modern houses in the mid 60s. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So this is before Endless Night and then you do get that suggestion that um yeah, the fact that the fact that a traditional Victorian house is flattened for something which maybe seems at first glance in Endless Night to be um absolutely laudable actually turns out to be corrupt and evil and yeah. uh, you know and ends uh quite stickily so yeah maybe she's kind of maybe there's some sort of ashfield vengeance going on there funnily enough so i because as you know mark dr mark aldridge i um, am from not far from wallingford where christy lived and i know that she spent a lot of time in the house in wallingford in, in winterbrook in the 60s and i remember thinking and i i think i said to you 
well, were there any new kind of housing developments around this time? Because it feels so significant to the plot of Miracle Act. It feels like something must have sparked it. And you being the intrepid researcher that you are, obviously found an answer. Yes. So I emailed Judy Dewey, who is uh, works at the Wallingford Museum, and she's a specialist in all things about Agatha Christie at the museum as well. And I asked her, was there a development with or without a capital D, uh, during this era. Uh, And I got a fantastic email back uh, from her where she said, yeah, there was quite a lot of development from about 1959 in Wallingford. And so, yeah, 59 to 61, that's perfect timing for when Christie's thinking about this book, right? Absolutely. So she's obviously drawing on things that she's familiar with, types of conversations that she may well have had herself about what would the impact be of a development uh, at the edge of a town or village. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't an idea that Chrissy leaves alone either. Uh, you know, like any writer, she has these preoccupations and they recur. One of the fascinating things about being a fan of all her work, as, as both of us are, is that you can kind of track these things through the various mm. novels, can't you? And and it recurs specifically in By the Pricking of My Thumbs. She talks again about these kind of developments. I think in this instance, it's on the um, edge of Sutton Chancellor, which we're told used to be a very one-horse place, um, which doesn't sound particularly positive, no. actually. If anything, a development has developed it, yeah, has improved life it. To it yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's a mention as well of development um, when a character takes an, when there's an excursion to uh, to around one of the protuberances of Hampstead Heath, which I picked out for being significant because, of course, we know that Christie lived very close to Hampstead Heath in the Second World War in a very modern block of flats, which arguably. Um, got her thinking about the ways in which people would live yeah, in, in the a coming more years. Way, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of blocks of flats, obviously we've done a lot of um, talking already about Third Girl, but that is so integral to the whole plot, isn't it? Third Girl is a Poirot novel set in swinging London about a young woman who thinks she may have committed a murder from 1966. The fact that they are in this particular setup, which is unique to the time. Funnily enough, uh, Ariadne Oliver um, likens Borodine Mansions, which is the block that the girls live in in that book, to looking a bit like Wormwood Scrubs prison. (laughs) And you might be forgiven for thinking that that's just Ariadne Ariadne Ariadneing being very her. But funnily enough, in Sandbrook, he talks about how with the rise of this type of building, this type of house in the 50s and 60s, these high rise blocks um, that are kind of fashioned out of prefabricated panels rather than brick by brick and there was then a sense towards the end of the 60s there was research done that showed that people felt like they were living in kind of prisons of the sky and actually not all the residents were too keen on them um so again christy's tapping into very much the feelings of people at the time there and we have the fascinating um landscape of the novel of the clocks the clocks is a poirot novel about espionage and an unidentified body from 1963 because we have this crescent of edwardian i think houses and then opposite that we have a modern block and and the novel spends a lot of time in this crescent but then there's a an excursion to the block is that right yeah that's right and we've got this very clear juxtaposition because we're told that it's Wilbraham Crescent, I think, that modernisation has not touched it, that these older houses... Um, you know, Ag- Agatha Christie had a particular obsession with bathrooms about where, where <laughs> the bathrooms been put in or changed or updated or, or whatever. Um, so this, we are to believe, is uh, pretty much untouched. Mm. But this modern block of flats is overlooking them right and that it's it's yeah. something that is imposing over the the, the perhaps mm. more traditional um architecture but what i th- really struck me when i was reading the clocks was not so much about the architecture of it but the way that that meant people lived and so when one character goes into this block of flats he is surprised to learn that there is no porter on duty oh, yes. <laughs> because that's such an old-fashioned idea of what, uh, you know, a Poirot's service block of flats. So of course I have a porter and you probably have a kitchen, but this is, this is not that. This is modern, self-sufficient, boxed-off living. Yeah, the thing that struck me about the um, description of the flats in The Clocks is, um, so we're with Colin Lamb's perspective, aren't we, who's the, sort of the detective for this book and uh, so he's going up to the block of flats it says it had a wide carriage drive sweeping round the block and 
two things occurred to me. One is that sounds a lot like the Isocon building from what I, having visited recently, that's mm. kind of very much the way that's Which is where up. she lived. Which is where she lived, yeah, in uh, near Hampstead Heath. But also Carriage Drive, that feels like a very <laughs> deliberately old-fashioned... It's almost like she's she's highlighting the fact that this is modernity versus, yeah, versus old so world. Much, yeah. And also it's interesting, you made the point, and you're absolutely right about the kind of imposition that this block has on this present. But also there's this kind of background sense, I think, of then what you get with a high-rise block is the potential to be overlooked. Mm. And isn't there a section in in the flats where we're given crucial evidence, the observation of a laundry van? Yes, yes. So it's from a girl who's been watching things yes. that are going on. Yes. So and this, if she this... was just in the house opposite the road, she might not have been able to see that. But from her vantage point, yeah. so again, the, the block of flats is, is relevant. The fact that it's a block is relevant to the plot, the, the, the mechanics of the plot. And I think it's also significant that that is almost a one-way system. Like, like, if you're yeah. if you're watching your neighbours and you're living in a terraced street, say, mm. you, you're probably going to be noticed. Like you're just behind the window. But if you're above, you're looking down. Yeah. Then that is a, a real sort of change in the way that you can interact with each other because you are yeah, observing definitely. rather than what we're saying is Christie basically gave JG Ballard the idea for high rise. Oh, wow. we're, we're basically saying that because <laughs> no, but that's the whole thing, isn't it? It's like it is this this idea of of the strata of society reflected in Christie was writing these things about yeah the way that humanity fits into new types of of living spaces long before many writers like like him. Um, yeah, give her give her the credit. Also in the Rats, which is one of the one yes. plays from Rule of Three, um, which is supposed to be claustrophobic and obviously is is for the stage, mm. and it's set in a studio flat, which yeah. she is not positive about. Um, you you picked out something good about that. Yeah, it's well, it's um, Alex says it's odd, isn't it? But this whole flat looks rather cruel to me, so hard and cold. These four walls that hold you in and just the minimum of necessities to live in it. What a horrible place to be shut up in if you couldn't get out. And of course mm, they can't. They're locked in, aren't they? Yes, yes. Yeah. The whole, I, um, the last line is, we're, we're rats in a trap. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, and that really adds to the, the tension of it. And again, it's something that is kind of, for me, it's kind of a, um, like a perversion, uh, like a modern perversion of a locked room mystery. It's like she's taking the trappings of the classic golden age and 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 br- br- dragging them kicking and screaming into the 60s yes yes new towns yes which I, I don't know if we need to explain a little bit for for people who don't know what a new town is yeah so there was this drive in the particularly in the 60s sort of straying into the seven. there were kind of three waves of it um that the british government were kind of creating these social hubs and particularly with a view to um well, new communities, but creating them with a particular eye on um, the way that people drive around a space and shopping centres. You know, we start to get malls in the UK, like that that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, there's a there's quite a sardonic reference in Christie, isn't there? Yeah, it's in uh, Star Over Bethlehem's story, uh, Promotion in the Highest. <laughs> Star Over Bethlehem is a lesser known festive collection of stories and poems from 1965. <laughs> Which is set in the year 2000. Mm. So she's thinking a few decades in the future. And uh, it's only a fleeting reference, but one character does say, uh, ruddy new towns. So this isn't a positive (laughs) thing. New towns were introduced so that people could live in clean, well-ordered, you know, new Mm. towns and small cities and stuff. Uh, That clearly is not uh, Christie's perspective, at least the way that Christie's interpreted through this character this character's perspective is not that it's that's a positive true thing. that's true yeah, uh, maybe exactly. maybe it's more about the character it's than in Christy. the mouth of the character isn't it yeah absolutely and um schools is another interesting one i think because um we've got uh so uh, harold wilson who's prime minister for a, a large chunk of this decade he is kind of both a very popular figure but he is specifically characterized in the popular imagining as a kind of man of the people to mm. some extent and it's it's well known that he is the first product of a sixth form of a grammar school to and i'm quoting the telegraph now but to come out on top and there's this kind of strata of schools isn't there so we've got the secondary modern comprehensive kind of school we've got the grammar the selective school and then 
obviously public schools and then public schools yeah. and public schools uh, for people outside of the UK despite what it sounds like yeah. are private schools yes uh, yeah. so where you're paying yeah it's use. very confusing uh, but obviously Cat Among the Pigeons set in a school Cat Among the Pigeons is a Poirot novel about the murder of a games mistress at a girls school from 1959 and there's there's quite a lot of page time given over to talking about why that's an unconventional school and that's a private school and it's funny because we hear Miss Ballstrode the headmistress specifically embracing what she calls the snob element she does say to be fair it's quite a small element really but she says a few foreign royalties a few great names and everybody all the silly parents all over this country and other countries will want their girls to come to Meadowbank and what's interesting about that is that, of course, is integral to the plot of the book because that's why we have Princess Shyster enrolled in the school. And then yes. the fact that Shyster appears in the school is what is kind of the instigator for all of the, the intrigue and mayhem that kicks off. So, yeah, again, something Christie is, is very aware of as a trend. But it's not just where people live that is significant is it because obviously it's where people are schooled mm. uh and partly where people work but also where people shop this is an important yeah. thing like it's 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 a it's a really significant part in the way the society has changed it's spending money in different ways and we see this really significantly in several books that consumerism yes. the idea that you people have more money so therefore they have way they're looking for ways to spend that money whether it's to enjoy themselves or to make their lives easier this is a really recurring theme isn't it yeah definitely and uh, the aforementioned development gets a supermarket we get told about the sorts of things that they stock and how the pre-existing shop fronts in St Mary Mead have modern signs mm. and there's there's a real sense of the winds of change yeah uh, Miss Hartnell tells us it's full of packets of things one's never even heard of and I, I noticed in my reread that it's teed up in Mirror Cracked that Marple and and women of her generation like Miss Hartnell believe in a, a strong breakfast of uh, bacon and eggs um, and uh, when she goes to Bertram's hotel she's one of the things that she's particularly bowled over by is the provision of a proper breakfast of yes. bacon and eggs none of this kind of modern claptrap cereal that's all boxed up and presented to you in a, in a glittery kind of metal basket in a in a soulless supermarket which is funny because um, it's one of those things that I don't think of as a particularly modern thing, but I guess is because it just yeah. feels like it's like so embedded in the way yeah, yeah. people live. Is that yeah. breakfast cereal doesn't feel like a, an innovation? Yeah, but... you had some cereal. And yeah, I had some cereal. You're so early. modern, Mark. Oh, no. Um, yeah, no, it's it, exactly. I, I'm struck again. I mentioned in a previous episode when we were talking about marriage about these this trend of books set in the American suburbs in the '60s, and writers like Richard Yates and John Cheever accredited with talking really insightfully about the way that exactly what we're talking about right now, the way that people live in small communities and the consumerism and uh, the modernity around that. And that's exactly what Christie's doing here with these comments, uh, particularly in, in Mirror Cracked. But also, so this really fascinated me. So I'm, I'm taking this from um, Modern British Playwriting, uh, edited by Steve Nicholson. So at the, at the start of each of these books, the editor gives us a list of the things that people bought in the decade. Hard toilet rolls, wooden tennis racks, footballs with laces, uh, roller skates, pink shrimps, raspberry chews, uh, jamboree bags, chocolate cigarettes. Uh, I'm trying to pick out the good ones. Uh, stacking chairs, plastic chairs, inflatable chairs, paper furniture, LPs, mono records, stereo record, bell-bottom trousers, beads, joysticks, kimonos. This is relevant because what do we get right at the start of The Pale Horse? It's amazing. When I read this, I immediately thought of this contextual research I'd done. Pale Horse opens, the espresso machine behind my shoulder hissed like an angry snake. The noise it made had a sinister, not to say devilish, suggestion about it. Perhaps, I reflected, most of our contemporary noises carry that implication. The intimidating, angry scream of jet planes as they flash across the sky. The slow, menacing rumble of a tube train approaching through its tunnel. The heavy road transport that shakes the very foundations of your house. Even the minor domestic noises of today, beneficial in action though they may be, yet carry a kind of alert. The dishwashers, the refrigerators, the pressure cookers, the whining vacuum cleaners. I mean, 
apart from being beautiful writing, it's, it is a roll call of yeah. modern labour-saving consumerist trappings. And it's it's so, as we've seen in that uh, playwriting book, it's so dead on in terms of what that era was all about for people. And Chrissy's very aware that one of the things that people are spending their money on at this time, one of the things we're going out and buying in our droves are these kind of labour-saving devices, arguably even this espresso machine we see at the start of the pale horse is is one of those yeah. devices. There's, I'm sure, I counted at least two, maybe three times that Cherry Baker is vacuuming in, uh, in uh, the mirror crap from side to side, and yeah, there is this sense of the intersection. I think of capitalism and the home, and it's it's a link that that Christie, maybe unknowingly, maybe not, is is making. Well, it's also interesting that whilst there are all these opportunities to buy different things in different places, Agatha Christie herself was saying, I don't particularly want to be a part of this. Please don't put my books next to the groceries. That's something that she really didn't want to see. We're even told in A Caribbean Mystery that Mr. Raphael, who's a crucial character, made his money by he owns a chain of supermarkets. Also, third girl again. Um, we've got. Uh, we're told about the the humble place that is Long Basing, um, and we're told that what had what had lately been the local grocers had now blossomed into calling itself a supermarket. And I wanted to pull out that example as well because blossomed is not a negative term. If anything, mm-hmm. that's that's the flowering, that's the improving of something. And it's just again a cautionary warning for us all. I think yet again to to not just assume that Christie is being um, negative and curmudgeonly about things, um, because that certainly doesn't sound it to me. We see quite a few things about this way that people are spending money, that that there are now so many more options. And that includes things like in the clocks, there is a mention of a travelling salesman, which is absolutely yeah. not new to the 1960s, don't get me wrong, but... It's this idea that there are so many more opportunities to say, our product, you know, the, the competition to get money from people because there's more money around. Yeah. There are these little hints from time to time about that there are ways that people are perhaps being encouraged to spend their money on new things yeah. uh, and that perhaps aren't necessarily always strictly necessary. What you get with that as well is because it's the victim yeah, who's yeah. a travelling insurance salesman and therefore there's an anonymity in his character. So again, there's this sense that kind of harnessing this modern trend to use within the mystery plot to create more mystery, actually. In Never Had It So Good, uh, he talks about this new class that's being forged in the white heat of popular culture. And it is like a whole new generation of young people with disposable income. Yeah, this this Chelsea set, these people yeah, who are yeah. Yeah, living lives uh, uh, that we hadn't really seen before. Um, that clearly, Christie's got her eye on and has a sense of that these people exist. Yeah, because we, we see them in The Pale Horse, we see them in Third Girl. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's a sense that they've got more money to burn there's a sense that with increasing wealth as you said earlier there's there are more ways that they can spend their money and actually i pulled out a section in in the pale horse there's uh thomasina tuckerton who is what a name i know and and the name is apt isn't it because she's she's a wealthy you know chelsea socialite um and her stepmother uh has it in for her um in quite a big way and not a miserly pittance but lots of money, big money, money that enabled you to do everything you had ever wanted and all going to this degenerate, ill-mannered girl slouching about in coffee bars of Chelsea in her jeans and her sloppy jumpers with her undesirable degenerate friends. Why should a girl like that, a girl who was no good and would never be any good, have all that beautiful money? Jeans and sloppy jumpers? What's wrong with jeans and a sloppy jumper? Well, how expensive were those jeans and sloppy jumpers? Mm. That's what I want to know. Of course, historically, one important part of Agatha Christie novels has often been things like servants, so Mm. that we're seeing different strata of society. We're not going to dwell on servants now because we're going to come back to it in another episode later. But I did just want to pick up on this idea about seeing people of different class in close proximity to each other, which class is still really, really present in these 1960s stories. Mm. So there are little hints occasionally, things like uh, The Water Bus, which is one of the star of a Bethlehem short stories, where we're we're sort of given an insight into someone's character quite quickly because... 
there's a woman at the greengrocers who was, as usual, affectionate. And that's said in a way that doesn't sound very positive. Yeah. Um, well ducks, apparently, is what, what she says. So you can imagine sort of a slight recoil, perhaps, from, from somebody coming to the from shop and someone saying, yeah. yeah. But, but there's also something else in By the Pricking My Thumbs. And I wasn't sure, actually, whether it's supposed to be a joke or not, but I laughed, which is that <laughs> at one point where Tuppence, who, although she's the, just the daughter of a vicar, and she, she does feel quite well-to-do and certainly middle class. Mm. And she meets another character who says to her, Perry, my name is, in a friendly voice, Alice Perry. And then Tuppence replies saying, uh, mine's Beresford, Mrs. Beresford. Yeah. And I was like, I can't even work out whether we're supposed to be untangling something from that about the ways that, that, that Tuppence is keeping it at a distance or, yeah. or whether that's just comes naturally to Agatha Christie writing. Yeah. Going, well, Tuppence is probably of a slightly higher class than, than you know. Oh, she definitely is, yeah. And intentionally or not, it, it, it immediately establishes who those two women are and how they're going to relate to each other, doesn't it? Which is, which is great writing. But yeah, it's also a bit... Uh, Bond, James Bond, but I think I prefer Beresford, Tumpers Beresford. I'd, I'd rather watch a franchise about her personally, but... The way that we see new money, especially from America sometimes, bearing in mind that Agatha Christie's father was American, mm. um, this seems to be a recurring theme about money drifting sort of across the Atlantic somehow, but it, it's it's very much looked down on by quite a lot of characters. Um, but in Endless Night in particular, we see the new money from Ellie, don't we? Which is a really strong yeah. motivating factor. Often we've got this sense of new money and old money as a binary, and I guess Endless Night, that's kind of made manifest by the fact that we have these two poles. We have Mike, who's very much on the make, he's very working class. And then there's Ellie, who, yeah, like you say, is is new money. And um, it's interesting, so much is made in the novel of the difference in their class. And uh, one of the things that John Higgs um, makes a point of in, in Love and Let Die is the way that... So he, he found this headline in, I think, The Mirror, um, which was The Brickie's Mate and the Daughter of a Brigadier... Um, in 62 and it was this scandal that a woman called Jeanette had eloped with a man deemed to be her social inferior oh, wow. um, but it's but it's true it, you see that in Endless Night as well don't you you see the, the yes. scandal that is the transgression of their relationship and I guess the cruel irony of the book is that he he is a wrong and he she should have stayed clear of him but not in for the reason that people think not because he's uh not because it's wrong that he's poorer than her, but because he's evil, basically. (laughs) So in Endless Night, we get Ellie, the American, coming and living in Britain with Mike. Mm. Uh, And of course, she's new money and she's American. So the locals are not impressed at all by that. Mm. They're much more impressed by people who superficially might have much less money, or practically might have much less money, but are ingrained in that part of society, that their family have lived there for a long, long time. That's what holds power and value for locals in Endless Night. It isn't actually having a lot of cash. It's it's the sort of innate respect or deference, really, yeah. that, that there is towards people who've lived there for a long time. And again, as somebody from a small town, I've got to say that you would recognise surnames of people. And I'm not talking about deference, but you would immediately perhaps treat them in a slightly different way because you knew that they are one of the big families of the town and mm. that they've been there for a long time. So it, it, it sort of follows through even to the modern age, I think. Yeah. And Mike in Endless Night is very conscious of his class, isn't it? We we talked about the way he narrates it's in the first yeah. person and the language used Christie is is commonly praised for, rightly so, I think, for being authentic of a man of that class of the time, which writing beyond her experience is pretty incredible. But he's very conscious of where he sits in the kind of inequalities of society, but also is it's very clear from the beginning that he's striving for more. We see that in his odd jobbing, his adoration of art and what art represents. It's, yeah, it's the motive and the top priority for, for Mike, down to the fact that his first victim is killed for a watch. Yeah, yeah. So mercenary, really, and, and the, the desire for money at, at any cost. Yeah, Mike says, I'm not really lazy. I suppose what I really am is restless. I want to go everywhere, see everything, 
do everything there's a very kind of conscious understanding that that money is a gateway to the world actually especially in this time when cap- western capitalism is becoming so dominant we we follow him you know walking down bond street and admiring the very natty uh, expensive shoes that he sees in the shop window yes. he wants to be able to buy those shoes he wants to be that person and again the cruel irony is that by the end of the book he he is that person but he's also he he's also a very different person he's also got a very different fate to maybe the one we expected but it's a fantastic novel endless night isn't it it is and it's got this real grit to it yeah that again it's it's not quite the organized crime that we were talking about in things like at Bertram's hotel but there's a cynicism to it like yeah. the money drives this cynicism uh because money's really important i mean full stop money's important but i think that the specifics of the way that it's treated in these 60s uh novels and stories is a bit different to what had come before <laughs> So next time we're getting togged up and uh, we're heading to the boutique uh, in our in our translucent shift dresses uh, because it's the fashion episode. <laughs> it's just so me. I'm just. I know so, what an image so, for the listener. Fashion. So fashion forward. <laughs> Um, but uh, do get in touch we'd love to hear from you especially if you've got any feedback if there's anything that you think we might have missed or that you'd like to unpack a bit more you can get hold of us across social media including x and insta at christy underscore time Uh, and on x you can find our personal accounts so gray's at classic underscore graham and i'm at dr mark aldridge you can also email us at the swinging christies at gmail.com Yes, and we've got links to your books on the various sites always, as well. Yes, always, do always. check them out. So there's Agatha Christie on screen. There's Agatha Christie's Poirot, the greatest detective in the world, and the, your forthcoming Agatha Christie's Marple expert on wickedness, uh, which is coming in June. Yes, amazing, very exciting. So yes, thanks. In the meantime, bye bye. Thanks for listening. Do tuck a tip into my waistband. Uh, the Swinging Christies is a Christie Time project by Dr. Mark Aldridge and Gray Robert Brown. This episode was recorded on the 5th of November 2023. Our artwork was designed by Bartlett Studio and our music is by Dar Golan. They're not very nice. <laughs> the flats well, that Ashby is. Can't say I can't that say that. They, they might be listening. They might be listening. I, I say that all the time. I always <laughs> say that in talks. And every time I think, I wonder if there's someone here from Don't it. say that in talks. Anyway, that's not for now. Maybe for a coda. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what controversial you want to be with the codas, really.